0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for today's podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome to the New Books Network, Bryant Simon, a professor of history at Temple University, and someone I'm proud to mention is on my dissertation committee. And he is here to talk about his brand new book, just out with the new press, entitled The Hamlet Fire, a tragic story of cheap food, cheap government, and cheap lives. Bryant, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Good to be talking with you, Steve. Uh, so to begin, why don't you just talk a little bit about yourself? I'm curious about your background and especially how you came to be a historian in general.
1: Well, I don't know really how I came to be a historian. I don't I don't when I went to college, my brother was the first person in my family to go to college, and it wasn't like I knew what a historian was, but I took a couple classes with um, several really good professors um this guy Tom Will I was an Emory I started at Emory and I just kind of fell into a couple of American history classes with this guy Tom Williams and then with Dan Carter um and I kind of instantly was hooked and I think what hooked me about history was the connections they made and 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 kind of broad connections both of both of these um scholars Williams and Carter were really good and linking up politics with the economy, with culture, bringing in novels. And that kind of vision of connecting those dots was something I found exhilarating. And um, in, in many ways, I, I, I sort of finished my major twice. I went, I went to Emory for two years and pretty much finished a history major there. And then I went to the University of North Carolina and started over again. So I, I kind of couldn't get enough. And I had a lot of different kinds of professors at that point. And... It was just an easy sell to me, but uh, I remember, um, maybe the the, the most amazing class I ever took was with Joel Williamson, who's a a pretty famous Southern historian. He was working on a book called The Crucible of Race. And the class was basically him laying out this really intricate argument for what would become the crucible of race. And and like, I just couldn't wait to go to that class to watch him kind of think through that. And the funny thing is, I actually didn't like the book much when it came out, uh, you know. But I had sort of changed in the way I was thinking about things. But watching him at work and making those connections, and 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 kind of quietly making historiographical arguments, but not leading with them, was really it, it was just enthralling. And I I, I still think about. It. I was telling a friend of mine about this recently, who asked me a kind of a similar question. But that Williamson class was just it was it was amazing.
0: I see. How did you come to write this book about Hamlet, North Carolina in particular?
1: Well, I I knew about the Hamlet story. I was living in North Carolina in 1991 when it happened, when 25 people died um, behind locked doors, that factory. And I was a pretty avid reader of the newspaper at the time. The newspapers in North Carolina, like many places, were really good then. And the Raleigh News and Observer in particular really poured um, resources into covering the fire for months. I mean, into 1992, they had regular coverage of it. I read it um, and I think it just stayed with me until years later um, as you kind of know, I became interested in, in food and food studies and I was talking to a graduate student at Temple about a dissertation project and I began to sort of talk about what I knew about the Hamlet fire and I was sort of like stop, I stopped and said, you know Let's find you a dissertation topic. I think I'm going to write about this. Um, because much of what I was interested in at the time kind of came as I was recalling the story to, it was Tyler Green. And as I was re- recalling the story to Tyler, much of the, much of what was interesting to me at that moment, um, kind of came to the fore. And a lot of it was about the food they were making in this factory that blew up. And it was chicken tenders. And I had written about kind of what lo- kind of affordable luxuries. in in a book about Starbucks that I'd written before, this book about Hamlet. So I was interested in this other side of the equation, what cheap products were, where they came from, and what they hid.
0: Why don't we start then with the basics? Tell us what happened in Hamlet, North Carolina on September 3rd,
1: 1991. Yeah, it was a tragic day. It was the day after Labor Day, um, a Tuesday, and... Workers were arriving at the plant, the Imperial Food Products plant in Hamlet, North Carolina. Hamlet's a small town on the South Carolina, North Carolina border, about two hours east of Charlotte, two hours, um, south of Raleigh, not on the interstate. Um, so it was a town that sort of had been forgotten economically to a certain extent. This plant had located there in some ways. Because it could hide there and 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 it could um, take advantage of labor, take advantage of a lack of regulations, and um, crank out really cheap products. Well, they had been having trouble with a hydraulic line. Um, they fixed that hydraulic line with the wrong part, and they didn't turn off the burners that were um, heating up a huge fryer that cooked the chicken tenders. When they turned the hydraulic line back on, the, the um, it burst and spewed hydraulic fluid all over the place, including under this burner and just ignited. And as it did, workers, you know, kind of, um, responded by running for the exits and they got to the exits and found them locked. Um, in one case, double bolted from the outside. In another case, they banged on the door. They tried to kick it down and unknowingly, um, the door opened to the inside 12 workers, maybe a few more, Um, having confronted those locked doors ran to a cooler and, um, ironically, this was a door that didn't shut and they thought they were hiding from the flames and the heat. Um, but they were basically trapped by carbon monoxide gases that leaked into the cooler and they died there. Um, by 12 o'clock that day, it had been revealed that 25 workers died behind those locked doors. Many of them, I mean, all, almost all of them died of carbon monoxide poisoning, except for a couple of people who were really close up to the fires, sustained some burns and some abrasion, some abrasions and some blunt trauma. But, um, and then what happened afterwards was a kind of, uh, you know, in some ways led by the newspapers was a kind of study in the forensics of the fire. Um, and what was quickly learned was that the plant had been there for 11 years. And despite the fact that, before it came to Hamlet it had um, numerous OSHA violations on its head it had never been inspected by OSHA it had never been inspected by local officials the fire department didn't have any pre-fire plans for the for, um, dealing with a the blaze there despite a n- number of fires breaking out there and the kind of um, really the story that unfolded or the story that made sense to me was, it was about that kind of systematic cheapening of the lives of some people and leaving them vulnerable to the um, kind of negligent actions of some. But 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 that but the, that both that that vulnerability and that negligence were in a sense produced politically by a whole set of solutions that kind of made this fire not an accident but something um, nearly inevitable.
0: So let's go back in time then about a uh, hundred years or so before the day of the fire. And, and let's look at how we got to that point. Tell me about, tell us about Hamlet, North Carolina around the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, because it, the way you describe it, it seemed like a very different place.
1: Yeah. Hamlet's it. It's Southern, obviously, but, but actually the probably better frame for it is kind of like the industrial cities of the country. It, It was an important railroad hub and, you know, for no other reason than at one point two railroads intersected there and the decision by the Seaboard Railroad to make it into a hub allowed the town to to build and become prosperous. And it was that kind of place where, you know, working people could, um, get a job out of high school or even before that and keep that job for 40, 50 years and retire. And in, in between those two points, buy a house buy a car, buy another car, maybe a boat, and send their kids to college. And um, it had a, a particularly good hospital. It had a relatively embellished downtown with an opera house, um, a couple of movie theaters. It was a kind of the American industrial dream city, right, built on relatively high wages unions. Um, and actually, the safety committees that the unions put in place that world begins to fray in the '70s, really, as a result, first of a kind of changing patterns of transportation in the United States, right? The kind of opting for um, trucks and opting for cars on vacations. The railroad became less important, and a kind of larger economic restructuring that um, would hole out all kinds of towns in, in the country and cities, from Detroit to you know. Euclid, Ohio, to any, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, Hamlet was just, you know, one more example of that. But it also meant that, like a lot of those places that get holed out, they became kind of particularly vulnerable to predatory kind of companies, who themselves were kind of, I think it's a story not told enough, is that in many ways, the United States re-industrialized in the 1970s, on top of kind of that burnt shell of its industrial kind of strength, companies move capital to those places that have been abandoned and re them in really different ways. And that's, you know, the, the heart of the story that I tell is that they now become places where you can take advantage of the mass movement of women and, and other people into the labor market so they become, you know, relatively kind of flooded with workers who were competing with each other and kind of pushing down wages. And now you have a place, it's not a high-wage place, it's not a union place, but a place vulnerable to kind of low-wage industries that will not sort of abide by safety regulations. Why
0: wasn't Hamlet, North Carolina, as you describe it, a, a union place? What was the role of unions before the 1970s or so and no, then it was, afterwards? It was a
1: union place. I mean, the, the railroad workers belonged to the Railway Federations. Um, they were relatively conservative unions, but – People in Hamlet, I mean, again, defying the kind of normal story of the South, were fiercely loyal to their unions because their unions were what delivered them into the middle class. They understood this and what protected them in relatively dangerous jobs. Um, in fact, there was a kind of fear by some Hamlet political leaders that its union past would somehow be this kind of odious taint that new industries wouldn't um, wouldn't want to sort of abide by. And when Hamlet produces some pamphlets that, you know, I cite in the book that trying to attract industry to town. They not surprisingly kind of erased this union past from, from its history, emphasizing instead the abundance that they, as they call it of, um, kind of party rural laborers or, you know, using some phrase like that.
0: What role did race play in Hamlet going into before the 1970s and then during the 1970s as well? What, what what racial dynamics are in play in the town?
1: It's interesting. I mean, Hamlet, I mean, part of the story, I think if you look at the index, I don't think I mentioned the civil rights movement at all. And in part, I mean, and it's not to diminish the accomplishments of that struggle, but Hamlet was in some ways untouched by it. Um, and that is to say that the town remained kind of divided along racial lines, um, segregated in terms of housing, segregated on Sunday mornings and segregated in terms of economic opportunity. Um, it had had like many small towns across the United States and in the South, the race riot in the 1970s that had been, um, triggered not shockingly by police, what was perceived as police, um, kind of overreach. And, um, so. It was, a, it was a town that, that, in some ways, I don't know what untouched is the right word, but not remade by the civil rights struggle. And um, by the time of the thought, when, and, and still in the 1990s, that was true, right? It was a town where race still mattered, right? I mean, I think it's probably the best way to put it. And the majority of the workers in the plant were African-American women, Um Many of them single mothers, many of them, you know, in their own kind of personal lives were dealing with the economic dislocations that were ravaging the town of, you know, the kind of collapse of, you know, good paying jobs for men, some men kind of disappearing or at least kind of wavering from kind of their, you know, persistent and ongoing commitments to family. And they were just trying to make do of a kind of complicated situation, um, The plan itself you know, reproduce some of the kind of classic signs of racial control. Again, the majority of the workers were African American women. The majority, if not all of the supervisors, maintenance officials and owners were white. Um, It was hard to escape kind of that, that dimension and workers talked about it a lot, but, but also, um, it wasn't, it wasn't as if there weren't some bonds and connections across racial lines. Um, so it was, a, and part of what I was trying to get at the book is, it was kind of a complicated situation—a situation that defied kind of easy categorization as, um, you know, a town where progress had been made, a town where nothing had changed. It was in a kind of uneasy situation where, you know, again, race still mattered, but it didn't define everything. But race was also a source of, you know, in the wake of the fire, not just getting ahead of things, where we can talk about more later. The way that vulnerability was constructed in Hamlet um, was probably no accident, right? The fact that the majority of people who worked in the plant were African-American also made it easier to forget um, that they were there and that they had a claim on the services of the city. And so when the fire happened, um, it in some ways exacerbated these existing racial tensions and and in a sense blew up um, afterwards.
0: A concept that is really central to, to the book and to the argument that you, that you quite successfully make in the book is this concept of cheap and you touched on it before, but can you expand on what you mean when you talk about this idea of cheap that really comes to the fore in the 1970s and going into the 1980s in particular? Yeah. I, was, I mean, I, I sort of
1: set the book up, you know, when I first went to start doing the research about fire, I didn't really know what I was going to say. Um, And I had this lunch with um, three local officials in town and they insisted to me that the fire had no, it was an accident. You know, if the owners of the plant, um, Brad and Emmett Rowe hadn't locked the doors, then as I said, we wouldn't be sitting here talking and um, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me then. And, And so I wanted to think about, you know, what you know, in some ways, the book is a social autopsy, trying to figure out the causes of the fire. And I kept coming around to this notion of cheap. You know, they serve cheap food. There was this push for cheap, deregulated government. And in a sense, this together cheapened lives, right? And as I thought about that, I began to contrast that with the kind of older social order that sort of was, you know, at play in a place like Hamlet. And that older social order... Valued high wages for workers, saw the paying of high wages as a way to spark kind of, um, local economic growth, right? You know, kind of like Henry Ford did, if workers made enough money, they would be able to buy consumer goods. And that also meant that, you know, we would protect workers' rights to organize and that, you know, giving them safe working conditions was important. This in a sense was the essence of the social bargain. High wages were good for everyone. I think what happens in the 1970s and the kind of larger part of the story that I, that I argue is, is that as inflation and economic global restructuring begin to affect the United States economy, New Deal solutions kind of falter. And there's this quick pivot, I would argue, in the United States to, to think that there has to be a different solution to the problems. And increasingly what political officials are saying is, look, you know, we just need more jobs. And if the jobs pay less, that's fine because we're going to get people cheaper goods. So in a sense, it's kind of a a reverse of what that earlier kind of social bargain was, which high wages would deliver economic consumption. Instead, it was low wages are fine and any job is a good job. And the bargain is we'll get you cheap goods to buy. And so the the kind of theme or the thing I keep sort of stressing in the book is, is that workers spend their days making these cheap chicken products and that's what they eat for dinner when they leave work, right? Cause that's all they can afford. And you know, as you know, from reading the book, this also kind of affects their health as well. But, but, but that switch in the social bargain, we're going to give you cheap instead of high wages. Um, but what cheap does and what I argue in the book is hide many of its costs, right? That, that the actual price of the goods is a lie that hides all this kind of vulnerability and risk and precarity. And this
0: is very much a book about food, as you alluded to at the at the beginning of this interview. How did the history of chicken change in the late twentieth century, in particular? And um, how? And you kind of mentioned this before, but again, how is that integral to this notion of cheap? Tell tell us about the history of how Americans eat and how that changed over the course of uh, of this period.
1: Yeah, when I was doing the research for the book, I, I stumbled on one other kind of kind of fascinating, at least for me, fact, and that was. About the moment that the fire happened was the moment that chicken took over from beef as the nation's number one source of meat-based protein. And I was like, you know, this is like a kind of remarkable shift in American eating. And there's been some good stuff about this. And so, you know, I was able to do my own research and rely on the research of others to sort of talk about why this happened. And, you know, the, the... First reason why this happened is there was a fair amount of research at the time that suggested that red meat was unhealthy for people. But the bigger reason why is that chicken became cheaper and cheaper, and it became ch- cheaper and cheaper as I show in the book through a kind of brutal process—a process that's brutal to animals. Um, you know, genetically engineering chickens; those breasts are so big that their legs can't support them. Um, by Slaughtering these chickens faster um, in, again, more brutal ways and in part sacrificing both those animals but the kind of arms and limbs of the workers who process them so quickly. And and then here's the link, right, that, that the cheapening of chicken happens just the very moment that wages are going down. And so, as workers are kind of pushing their carts through small town and large city supermarkets and they get to the meat aisle, well, what's jumping out of them is the price of the the price of chicken, which has been, you know, systematically kind of pushed down by a a kind of relentless innovation and competition and brutality. But, and this is the other twist that happens at that moment. So, you have this moment in 1990 where chicken passes beef, in part because it's healthy, in part because it's cheap, but chicken, Raised that way it kind of doesn't have a lot of taste to it. And um really competitive industries are looking for ways to kind of maximize their profits. And one of the things they realize is they can like glue this stuff together and fry it up and people will like it better. And so uh, also at this moment is the kind of rise of the chicken nugget. And so around 1990, 91, when chicken passes beef, just about that same time, People start talking about chicken fatigue, that people are tired of eating chicken, and they load it up with fat and sugar and salt, and basically um, half of the chicken sold by 1991 is fried. So this initial proposition of a healthier kind of alternative to beef and a cheaper alternative to beef remains cheap, but it also remains dangerous to people's kind of bodies and everyday health. And so... I talk a lot about that change and where the imperial plant fits in that kind of complicated process because um, it's important to the story.
0: Yeah, your, your history in the book of the chicken nugget is really remarkable. And I really, really enjoyed, if that's the right word for reading that part in particular. So Thanks. that's that's the story of cheap food to an extent. You mentioned in the, in the in the title as well cheap government, and I particularly appreciated um, how you talk about OSHA in, in regards to this concept of cheap government. I remember in the say the grocery stores, for instance, that I worked in growing up. I remember there were OSHA signs on the walls, but I never really gave it much thought to what it was exactly. So, tell us about the creation of OSHA and how it fits into this larger story of cheap government that is that's critical to your book.
1: Sure, OSHA is again kind of an interesting piece of legislation. Um, passed by the Nixon administration during his first term in office. And some people saw it as um, a kind of culmination of the New Deal. And in some ways, it actually – OSHA is a government, federal government agency that is put in place to protect workplace workers on the job. And if you think about it that way, it actually promises a kind of expansion of government's role into the factories un, unheard of before. They can literally come into the factories to inspect Um, a plan. You know, the Wagner Act didn't do that. No piece of American labor legislation had done that. But we'll go back to my initial thing. This was a Nixonian piece of legislation. And um, I think we think about Nixon a lot in the Southern strategy, right, of trying to pull whites out of the Democratic New Deal coalition. But Nixon was, you know, trying to pull that coalition apart in many different directions. And so OSHA was offered as a kind of olive brands to the labor movement, to white workers, right, to leave the Democratic Party. But it was never really funded very well. And and this is a kind of double-edged sword. So Ocean never really lived up to its promise to really protect workers. It it, it had to have if to do that, it would have had to make a massive investment in the number of inspectors that it had. But it did hold out a promise. A promise that Labor tried to hold the federal government to, tried to hold state governments to, and, a, you know, a promise that scared the crap out of business, right? That, you know, they understood what this dynamic was. And so the moment that OSHA gets into play, it's a tussle. That tussle is in some ways um, exacerbated again by the economic restructuring of the early 1970s and, 19, and, and, and 1980s. And increasingly, Business leaders, but not just business leaders, you know, middle class Americans, Democrats and Republicans begin to rethink what they, you know, the nature of the economy. And they begin to see OSHA as a conspicuous symbol of government intervention that's holding back economic growth. And the promise of cheaper government is a deregulated government. And again, OSHA is important to that symbol. Now, how does this play in a place like North Carolina? In North Carolina, again, the initial Nixon law was not just a sap to working people, not just a sap to white people, was also a kind of you know, an entree to the South to come into the Nixon coalition. And he invoked kind of notion of states' rights and he said, Look, if you want, you can have your own state-based OSHAs. You don't have to have federal, federal, um, federally run OSHA supposedly you were supposed to have the same standards as the federal OSHA, but a place like North Carolina immediately understood what this meant. They could run OSHA, and they could systematically kind of eviscerate it. And that's what they did. So by 1991, there were appeals for cheap in the state budget in North Carolina. We got problems. You know, We got to still build roads. We got to still build prisons. Where is this money going to come from? Let's take it from OSHA. Um, that will allow us to track more industry. And so by the time of the fire, North Carolina, this is the state that OSHA's decline in North Carolina had come to be. North Carolina had 180,000 workplaces in 1991, that is, places with 11 or more employees. It had somewhere in the neighborhood between 30 and 35 inspectors whose job it was to check these workplaces. If they worked every day, five days a week, inspecting one plant, it would have taken them between 60 and 70 years to inspect every plant in North Carolina. What does that mean? That means that you don't have to abide by safety standards. In fact, if you're doing Imperial Food Products in Hamlet, North Carolina, and you're operating in an incredibly competitive industry where there's constant pressure on your bottom line, you're at a competitive disadvantage if you abide by safety regulations. And, you know, the, the owners of that plant, you know, it's one of the challenges of writing the book was to somehow, you know, be honest about what they did and didn't do, but not to make them bad guys in a sense, to put them in the system as well. Well, they followed the logic of the system. And the logic of the system said that you had to cut corners whenever you can. And ultimately, what happened was they operated under this veil of a lack of regulation and cut corners whenever they could. And they cut enough corners that they, you know, in a sense, they didn't value the lives of the people who worked there enough to to sort of respect them and they put their lives in danger and ultimately, um, you know, turn their plan into a death trap.
0: And that's really one of the, the ways that, that the concept of cheap lives comes into play. Um, and you really get into this idea about cheap lives and the cheapening of lives in this, this wider system in the chapter that you title bodies, which is a very deeply affecting chapter. Um, and so you have, Also, foods coming into play. The foods that people are eating changing people's bodies. So how do lives get cheapened through the food that they eat and through the work that these people in this plant are doing? Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, in some ways, these people were systematically attacked by the system of cheap. I mean, um, a place like Hamlet, when the Rose first thought about moving there and bringing jobs and investment there, were probably hailed by local officials as, you know, and as people creating jobs, as people helping the local economy. But what they really did is destroy people and the work itself kind of, um, tore apart workers' hands and backs. Um, many of them suffered from repetitive motion ailments that they self-medicated from or eventually their bodies broke down and, um, bad backs, burns, you know, the whole kind of litany of things not having a kind of firm sense of their rights, and not sort of working for a fair employer. Many of them just left, right? So the turnover rates were really high in this plan. But at the same time, and there was a, a statistic that really kind of jumped out at me when um, the autopsy reports for the victims of the dead would note um, their height and weight. And if you ran those, I mean, again, this is a kind of problematic indicator, but just as a rough indicator, if you ran them through a kind of You know, one of these standardized tables you can find online about what make, you know, what makes a healthy body, what makes an unhealthy body. 18 in the 25 would be overweight and unhealthy. And this is when I really saw dramatically. And I would, when I I talked to a lot of people, you know, the people I talked to who survived the fire are talking about what they ate. And essentially they ate what they made and what they made were, you know, foods that were calorie dense and filled with fat, sugar and salt. But that's all they could afford. They were paid so little that their only choice was unhealthy food. And they were part, they were embodiments, if you will, of what has been called the paradox of plenty. Where the poorer you are in the United States, particularly in some parts of the developing world, the more vulnerable you are to dangerous calories. Um, And the, the other thing that's really important about this is, that this begins to sort of defy the notion of choice that's at the heart of a market-based economy, right? That that individual choice is what we're trying to establish and individual choice, you know, pursued um, by everyone will create better outcomes, right? Well, but we have another kind of narrative that, you know, people who are heavy are a drain on our economy because they don't have enough discipline over their own bodies to take care of themselves, right? This kind of both middle-class discourse that kind of holds it together. Well, you can see in the stories of the Hamlet victims and the people who survived the fire that they were being utterly rational. They were buying the most calories they could for the low wages they got, and their bodies were being destroyed, and when they were destroyed, they were put back on public assistance and doubly blamed, right? And, and so being considered problems. So I was really interested in the way that... Um, These cheap calories were affecting their lives, but also, again, the way in which we were unwilling to be honest about the system or to sort of really address the way that that they were being they were being made sort of less healthy by the system they worked in and low wages.
0: So the fire happens on September 3rd, 1991, and 25 people are killed. What happens after the fire, both in the short term and then in the long term? Does How does Hamlet and, and the state of North Carolina change because of it, or maybe more accurately, not change in other ways because of the fire?
1: It is, the fire was a, a kind of media event as well. Um, and in the immediate aftermath of the fire, um, Several people rush to town, and we can talk about each group of them. And one is, you know, reporters and television um, cameras. And the fire gains the attention of the night line. It lands on the front page in the New York Times, and it was, you know, again, really well reported by the papers of North Carolina, particularly the Raleigh News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer. They created a shift for a moment in the conversation in North Carolina and they, um, politically, it was unsustainable not to talk about the fire and not to sort of propose some solutions that would prevent the fire from happening again. Um, though many people sort of laid the blame really at the rose, um, feet. And in the next leg, um, in the 1992 legislative session, North Carolina passed some meaningful reforms, um, but, What I argue at the end of the book is that, well, some of these reforms are meaningful and some of these reforms make, you know, working people safer on the margins. It does not dislodge the system of cheap or the logic that cheap is the kind of proper and right social bargain and, you know, chicken, you know, there's not an honest accounting for the price of chicken. Workplace industries remain high, um, this industry relies on kind of vulnerable workers in different places increasingly Latino and um, Asian workers who um, are either, do- either documented or undocumented. None of that changes really, none of that. Um, and so to me, you know, one of the important things is, well, the fire bears um, many um, kind of the marks and the resemblance to the triangle factory in New York in 1911. It does not have the profound kind of jarring of uh, the nation's consciousness and kind of reworking the social bargain It just it doesn't disrupt it and that to me is the kind of ultimate tragedy right that these people died without changing that conversation um beyond that the, the, the 10 years you know 10 15 years after the fire kind of harrowing years for many of the people who will live in hamlet and 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 survive the fire that same day that reporters descend on town, so do lawyers. Um, And at one point, there are so many lawyers wandering around the hospital in Hamlet, the police have to come and kind of run them out of there. Um, But there is a kind of frenzy of lawsuits and of litigation. And, you know, some workers get paid and for some workers that, that getting paid and, you know, they get paid in some sort of substantial ways. We'll talk about cheap in a second. Um, it doesn't change the real fundamental thing I talk about is that they had a trauma inflicted upon them that just keeps kind of replaying itself. And I'll give you one, you know, so people get paid in these lawsuits and the lawsuits seem rather large when you look at them kind of in the aggregate, like 16 million and maybe more. But for Loretta Goodwin who I opened the story um, of the fire talking about, she got you know maybe 40 or 50,000. I can't remember exactly. You know, I'm not, I'm not scoffing at that but it was because of a kind of grim calculation right she was 40 years old and they added up you know her five dollar an hour job and calculated what she'd make for the rest of her life and you know that that kind of like reducing people to that calculation is probably not surprising um but you know it's it, it kind of made clear just you know how much some people's lives were more worth more than others but the, the, so, Loretta is a good example of it. Like many of the people who survived the fire, she continues to this day to suffer from PTSD symptoms and um, a kind of trauma—a trauma that um, was delivered that day, but it had, you know had sort of started before the fire and will continue after. And there's one kind of perhaps symbol of the fire, the cheapening of lies about race. That I think is worth repeating, and that is that that plant would remain up in Hamlet for ten years after the fire, and that plant was in um, on the black side of town, and so it meant that for African Americans, that if they went to church, they went to school, if they went to the grocery store, if they went to their job, they had to pass the plant, and there was nobody who lived on that side of town, South Hamlet, who didn't hadn't lost somebody in the fire, and to be reminded of that, and to be reminded of the city's sort of dragging its feet in their minds um, for taking the plant down and turning it into a memorial was the most graphic symbol that they didn't matter in town, and it led to anger, frustration, and a deep distrust in the political system that in a sense allows Che to reproduce itself Right? if they didn't care. And, um, I've, so the, the themes of trauma and of um, really terror are, are, are sort of the end of the story. Um, and then there are just the, the kind of harrowing parts of the story of murder, um, of vengeance, of just, you know, unthinkable um Meanness and harshness that people inflict on one another because of the trauma they experienced as a result of the fire and you end the
0: book by pointing out that Hamlet is not um, a, a story unto itself, It doesn't exist in a vacuum, and you make some really i found really important kind of global connections. so how was the Hamlet fire tied to a larger worldwide and ongoing story?
1: Well, I mean, what I'm trying to suggest in in that ending and throughout the book is in some ways. The economic relationships that um, create the conditions for the fire are really the economic conditions that are um, we call globalization quite often, and that is capital is mobile. It can go wherever it wants. In an increasingly competitive global market, it finds itself going where it can find the cheapest labor, and that means creating people who aren't just low wages, but a kind of vulnerability. Um, And that's what, to me, that um, kind of late capitalism overproduces silence and vulnerability. And so, you know, when a plant blows up in Bangladesh and when a chicken factory in China blows up and when, you know, poor people in a building in London... Um, where regulators just disregarded the use of dangerous materials, that's vulnerability that's being created. That's vulnerability that's being created in the interest of kind of capital. And, um, so, and to call them accidents is to erase the system that creates them. And so that what what I'm again getting at is this, um, dynamic that happened in Hamlet, um, is really a dynamic we've seen across the globe that, um, much of the the products that we find inexpensive are produced in this way and their price tag is a lie and, um, they require this kind of overproduction of silence and vulnerability.
0: Okay. Well, traditionally, uh, podcasts on the new books network, we, we ask, um, a question that, since this book has only been out for about a month, um, might seem kind of silly, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What are you working on now, now that you have um, moved to, you know, this, this book is out and you're moving on to a new project? What do you have um, coming up next on the docket, do you think?
1: Nothing. <laughs> I really, um, I just I haven't really settled. <laughs> it's a bad answer, I guess. Um, it's a sensible I just answer, just I haven't think. settled on what I want to write about now and. I kind of um have sort of promised myself not to settle on what I want to write about now, so I'm just reading and looking for some inspiration and some ideas that move me and that I want to spend a few years kind of really going over. so if you have i mean I'll take suggestions I mean, I just don't know yet, and but i'll I'll find something I'm sure.
0: Well, then let me ask a, a, a similar but but different question. Then, what are you what are you reading right now that
1: you that you're enjoying
0: particularly, history or non history, whatever it is.
1: Well, I'm reading the new Jasmine Ward novel, which is really good, and um, I'm also reading Sam Kinonis' book about um, the kind of development of the opioid crisis, which is a really kind of masterful um, study of like changes in how we think about pain to Transformations in Mexico to um the way in which doctors are prescribing prescription drugs. It's really and his kind of broken up into these short chapters, it's a really um cool and interesting book. Um and I'm also I have a little bit of an interest in maybe writing about Philly, so um, I've gone back and I'm reading Lisa Levinson's book on um um African American women organizing in Philadelphia, which is a um a great book of a really different kind, right? A kind of historical monograph that's really smart and interesting.
0: Okay. Well, Brian, thank you for your time. Uh, Brian Simon is a professor of history at Temple University, and his new book, just published in the last couple months from the new press, is The Hamlet Fire, a tragic story of cheap food, cheap government, and cheap lives. Thanks again, Brian.
1: You're welcome.